0: Chapter two, 1990 to 1992. The big bet on Windows begins to pay off, but Microsoft struggles to win over developers who are enamored with object-oriented programming and C++ to more easily build GUI programs. Within Microsoft, differing cultures emerge between groups and eventually define the company. Section eight, competing with Steve Jobs the first time. Microsoft was starting to lose its edge even with Windows taking off. The company got its start with languages and developer tools, but the early 1990s tech enthusiasts and hobbyists were moving away from basic toward more advanced or professional languages and tools. Developers were being wooed by an exciting upstart, Borland International, led by an energetic Frenchman, Philippe Kahn, Borland captured the hearts and minds of enthusiasts with a line of turbo tools that integrated a compiler, code editor, and debugger into one slick package. It was fast, really fast. Fast the way that got under the skin of Bill G. With support for both Pascal and C, and priced favorably, the products and the company became a favorite among independent developers. It also didn't hurt that Borland expanded its product base to include a killer spreadsheet in Quattro Pro. Get it? It came after Lotus 1-2-3. And Paradox, an industrial-strength database for MS-DOS. The online version shows an ad from the industry trade press for Turbo C++. Microsoft secured the professional end, particularly with Microsoft C 5.1, the product we were using for our ET++ experiments. The successor product, Microsoft C 6, re-upped the professional standard, but was late, as everything was, and lacked the pizzazz of Borland. Microsoft responded to Borland with QuickC and included an integrated all in one product for MS DOS, and with C6, timed a Windows version as well. QuickC was viewed as a defensive move. It was. We were focused on the high end commercial developer, not on hobbyists or solo developers. Being squeezed from the low end was one thing, but the high end was becoming problematic for Microsoft. Not only was the C6 product late, but it was C and neither C++ nor object oriented. This challenged Microsoft's perceived leadership. In addition, Borland's products performed better than the anticipated C6. Internally, the teams, particularly Excel, began testing whether they could move to the Borland tools. This was especially noteworthy because it was coupled with a move away from Microsoft's proprietary C-like language, CSL. As if this wasn't enough, the growing importance of the graphical user interface would soon require a wholesale reinvention of tooling. Microsoft was way behind. Windows was our platform, but we lacked convincing and competitive tools. Squarely between Windows and OS2, the tools team all but sat out developing new tools for GUI programming and focused simply on the programming language. The additional tools for developing the interface of menus and dialogues, as well as the complexities of making a GUI program, were left to the respective platform teams. These teams shipped tools in a software development kit, SDK, which was complete but not nearly as polished as a product as Borland sold. This was my first experience with disruption, though that word was years away from business vocabulary. In 1990, we just called it competition and losing. The online version includes a two-page advertising spread from Borland titled Borland Does Windows Better. And this ran every week and drove everybody from Bill G on down crazy. While our marketing team talked all about revenue and market share, like any good business, in reality, tools was not really a business. An important lesson about tools and platforms that I was learning in real time was that a robust platform company invests, that is, spends money on, tools at an irrational level to support the platform. The reason Borland could have a tools business was because it was spending much less than Microsoft, and so it could be profitable. Microsoft was spending more money and making a worse product. In other words, it was part of an irrational investment that wasn't paying off. We were a poor business, and we were failing at building professional tools people wanted to use. Losing control of the tools was akin to losing control of the platform. Apple invested heavily in tools for Macintosh, just like a winning platform should. There was also a vibrant market for many different languages and tools for creating apps for the unique graphical platform. This was well known within Microsoft because so many of the apps engineers got their start writing Mac software in college, including me. There was always a sense of envy regarding the elegance of building GUI applications with a GUI tool set like on Macintosh. Bootstrapping was when programming tools were able to create themselves. Historically, programmers viewed bootstrapping as an important, if mostly symbolic, step in developing a platform. Microsoft was far from bootstrap, as it was still using Xenix and OS2 to develop for MS-DOS and Windows. Worse, most developers at Microsoft thought this was a superior way to build software. All that marketing were doing was, was explaining that a GUI was easier to use had the effect of telling programmers that GUI was how lesser programmers worked. Worse, it was what our own marketing team was telling us about our own customers. Besides, even with these great tools and a lead of several years, Apple was still far behind in PC sales. Steve Jobs was no longer at Apple, and his new company, Next, was top of mind for Bill G in the industry. As successful as Windows was for Microsoft, there was a strong belief that no single system would dominate. Next was new, Next was led by Steve Jobs, And most of all, the product was clearly innovative and setting a bar by which Bill G would judge our product and technologies. The online version has a Business Week magazine cover from October of 1988. Steve Jobs, can he do it again? And he's kind of looking a little smug. There's also a video of Steve Jobs at San Francisco launching Next Computers and Tools. A key part of this presentation that caught Microsoft's attention was the presence of Lotus CEO Jim Manzi describing how they built a unique spreadsheet product on Next called Improv. He said, we would not have been able to invent such a revolutionary new product on any other platform. That definitely got Microsoft's attention. Microsoft had to do something, something about Borland and something about Next. Moving offices at Microsoft was a constant. It was time for our first move to new buildings that were even bigger than the big double X layouts. These were the new buildings for apps, 16, 17, and 18. Rather than low slung gray, these new buildings were three stories of glass and brick and featured their own courtyard and fountain, which would be the site of our future ship parties. The buildings had huge atriums of open space and skylights while still maintaining the sacred nine by 12 foot single office with a door. The three buildings were connected by an enclosed tube system that made the whole thing look like a habit trail. The uniqueness of these tubes meant that they were frequently used for photo shoots and videos. The online version includes a photo of the fountain between those buildings. The night before a move, my first of a dozen that I would experience, MS Move dropped off a stack of boxes, a roll of tape, and a move form. The form was used to draw a placement of the huge oak desk, the return, the guest chair, and the developer folding table, all in the office. The movers showed up at the end of the day, Unplug phones and computers and put everything on carts and truck them to the new office. Unpacking could happen 12 hours later. The MS phone person eventually showed up to make sure that the newly hooked up phone worked with your assigned number. This was going on every night in every building at Microsoft. It was like a giant nine square puzzle where at any given time, an entire group existed in the moving trucks in the parking lot because there was never enough space for everyone, even with the new buildings. My new office was right around the corner from a connecting Habitrail tube, and for the first few months, I could hear the door slamming every time someone entered the tube. There was a design defect that turned the tube into a giant wind tunnel, making the door really difficult to open while also forcefully closing it with high-speed wind. Eventually, some vents were added and solved the problem. As with every hallway of developers, there was a deep sense of personalization that came with the private office space we were each allotted. Since most people were not yet quite grown-ups, there were no family photos or traditional memorabilia. Rather, offices were filled with some form of personal collection, often representing youth. I saw a collection of vintage car license plates, a wall of album covers, a beer can collection sitting on a custom shelf high up on the wall, and so on. And most every office featured a pyramid of used beverage containers, usually Mountain Dew or the ever-present Washington apple juice, and the occasional chocolate milk containers, like the ones from elementary school. Next to each door, there was a full-length window, a relight, about one foot wide that made up the type of institutional glass from high school with wires inside that gave a sense of involuntary confinement. While designed to let light in from the outside, it often served as an outward-facing sign of personal expression. Usually the first thing decorated in a new office were relights covered in stickers, signs, and news articles, Dilbert comics, jokes, and bad code examples or bug burn-down charts all expected expected to be updated with some frequency. The online version includes a photo of some of my Relight and a bookcase. Like the first day of high school, people wanted to stand out, but they didn't really want to stand out. I nervously attached a few items to my glass, mostly American tourist trap kitsch from my recent cross-country drive, a wall drug sticker, a Corn Palace postcard from South Dakota, and a copy of Elvis Presley's death certificate I had acquired in Memphis. Road and street signs were also popular. My slow children at play road sign followed me around for a decade. I didn't realize it, but our ET++ team had just been reorganized. Not only did I move offices, but I found myself on a new and bigger team with a clarified and huge mission.